Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 1. Um, we're going to be in verses 5 through 25. So the word Advent, it, it means coming. Now, some of us grew up in a world where we celebrated Advent, right? Some of us just grew up in church and it was just Christmas. Well, the focus of Advent really specifically is to understand and anticipate truly the arrival of Jesus Christ. Because that's what the word Advent means. It means arrival. As you saw in the video that so powerfully portrayed these shepherds seeing the fulfillment of God's promise in Jesus. The people of God, the people of Israel had always been a longing people. They were people who were under oppression and they were longing for rescue. They were people who continually worshipped and were longing for the long-expected, the promised Messiah. They looked ahead for their Savior to come. Now, the difference is for us is that we, as brothers and sisters, live on the other side of Christ's birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. And we look toward, as Clay mentioned this morning, the second coming. We look ahead to the future hope of Christ's return confidently by faith. And there's a special opportunity that we have in this season to celebrate Christ's coming by identifying people that are a part of this story. Identifying people and identifying with people that arrive on the scene of this story. This great drama, as we celebrate Advent, we have the opportunity to find ourselves in this story. Over the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to take a look at four specific individuals or groups of people who waited expectantly on the Lord. And we're going to see the history of the incarnation, and, the, and we're going to take an opportunity to really do this, to step into human moments, real human moments, real moments of pain and moments of promise, moments of deep fear and moments of peace and hope, moments of joy. We're going to begin that today as we look at the life of Zechariah. In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verses, beginning in verse 5, rather, and through verse 25. Let's read this together. It says this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. All right, so it's a long story. We just read 20-ish verses of it, right? So, so why, why this? It's really important, one, to understand if you read the early portion of Luke, just it's very introductory verses, you see that he longs to write for this one Theophilus, the one to whom this letter, uh, this gospel, this story of Jesus is written. He wants to provide an orderly account. He wants to give a very detailed history. Luke's taking first-hand accounts, and he's compiling, he's putting the good news of Jesus together. And he's doing so in such a way that he doesn't want to leave a stone unturned. And so in order to do that, he writes not just with facts, but with everything that surrounds it. He paints the picture. He helps the reader, the hearer, you and me understand what's actually going on and taking place. Because here's the thing, I think a lot of us understand Luke 2. We've all heard Luke 2. Anybody seen a Charlie Brown Christmas, you know Linus's monologue, right? How it starts. And there were shepherds in that region, right? Tending flocks by night. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 8 and onward. You get the picture of this angel of the Lord coming to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest. Proclaiming the good news that this day in the city of David, the Savior is born. We often remember that. But Luke helps us understand that the story begins even before this. And it's not enough for him to just start there. He wants to go back further and say, you got to see and behold these people, particularly this couple who in so many ways symbolizes and helps us understand what God is actually doing in Jesus' coming. Today, we're going to see Zechariah's arrival on the scene and three big things. Three big things in this big text. Number one, that God remembers us. God remembers us. Number two, God reveals himself to us. And number three, God renews us in the silence. Look at verse five, and you get the start of the story of who Zechariah is. He is a priest. He is a Levite, therefore. He comes from the tribe of Levi. He's a mediator. He's one who is offering worship to God on behalf of the people. It's a big job. It's an important job. At this time, history would tell us that there are probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 18,000 priests, priests that are just like Zechariah, whose job is to offer worship to God on behalf of the people. 
we also find out that he's part of a group or a division, this one called Abijah. And those little details might sound strange or unnecessary or things that shouldn't really be a part of the story. But when you know the history behind it, the beauty and the providence of what God does is bringing Zechariah to this moment where he hears from this angel, he gets this proclamation from the Lord. It's really, really powerful. He's a division of Abijah. So this is what this means. Um, David, if you look back into 1 Chronicles chapter 24, you're going to see David creating these divisions of priests. So there's, if there's 18,000 priests or, or a number around that, there's a lot of priests, and so much so that there are more priests than there is work to do. David is perhaps maybe the first kind of, you know, evangelical Baptist type guy in the sense of this guy's creating committees out here. He's making groups of people. He's designating groups of people to do stuff. Even more so, it's probably even more akin to the way that we have greeters here on Sunday mornings or ushers or people that, that, that work in tech or people that are, are with children that are teaching students or children or preschoolers, people that are on a rotation, Right? that do it one certain week, like they greet the first of the month, or they usher the second Sunday of the month, those types of things. There are all of these divisions and all of these different priests that have these different things that they do, and they're actually, look down at verse 9, and you see the detail of that the, they're called by lot to go up. So this is, this is a chance, this is a casting thing, right? It's a, it's a probability type thing where a die is cast, but what we're going to see is that God providentially places Zechariah in this place, in this time, to help him see how much he cares for him and how much he cares for you and me. Because for Zechariah and Elizabeth, in some ways, they would be ordinary. They're a priest and a wife who come from a priesthood lineage in Aaron. They're a faithful people. The text says that they're righteous, meaning that they're trusting in God's promises yet to come by faith and that they're walking blamelessly according to his word in all his commandments and statutes. In some ways, they're people who have a powerful, purposeful, designated calling. And we might say that they look like people that kind of have it all together. And then in verse 7, we get this brief look at the life of pain that they've walked in and experienced. Called by God to minister to God's people, to offer sacrifices on behalf of people, to offer the people's worship to God and reconciliation. And yet, Luke describes it in this way, that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they both advanced in years. Luke's doing something really powerful because he wants us to understand that the coming of Christ means that God remembers us, that he has not forgotten us. So why start with Zechariah Elizabeth? Why introduce this story at the narrative? Why do this at the beginning? You know why? Because they very clearly in their situation resemble this other family in the history of God's people. It's Abraham and it's Sarah. 
And you look back to Genesis 12 and the beginning of the promise that God makes that Abraham will be the father of many nations. The descendants will outnumber stars in the sky. And yet he and Sarah were in the same place, one of barrenness. A situation that quite frankly, at least from a physiological standpoint, looked completely hopeless in every way. Why does Luke do this? Why does he show this? Why does God allow these people to walk through these things in this time to reveal that the promise of God will come true? That God does not forget his people. He remembers them. You know what Zechariah's name means? It means God remembers me. At the outset, the goal of these words is to help you and I remember that we're not forgotten. God remembers us in the same way that he remembers Zechariah and Elizabeth. In the very same way. He also reveals himself, God reveals himself to us in the same way, or a similar way rather, that he reveals himself to Zechariah. Look down in verses 8 and onward and you see this. He's serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty. And here's the beautiful providential thing. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So here's what this looks like. He would go up with a group of priests that had been designated to serve at the temple in Jerusalem. They would make the trip and they would go and then these lots are cast for them to be given the different jobs and the things that they would do. So this incense burning, there's, there's, there's an order to what happens here. And historically, this is what we know from the Old Testament writings in the temple. What's going on is this, that there would be ashes of coals that had burned in the temple. And one priest would go in to the inner, inner room of the temple and would bring the ashes, take the ashes out, would clean them. This is ceremonial holy work to take out these ashes of coals that had burned. The next priest would enter and bring in fresh, hot coals that are burning the next priest would come in and would put incense over the coals and when that happened not only was there a fragrant aroma but there were also billowing towers of smoke why was this a part of worship well because it depicted the prayers of god's people rising to him That's what's happening. And it is not coincidence, it is instead providence that Zechariah's lot that falls on him and that he is the one who comes in and as a result of being a part of this process, brings in incense and then right on the side of that altar, this is what we see. An angel that comes to him. An angel comes to him, tells him, do not be afraid, down in verse 13. They will have a son. Moving forward, we can see down in verses 18 and 19, the angel speaks to him. And how do we know that this is God revealing himself? You look at what he says. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. This is the degree to which God remembers us, not just with sentimental thought, but with action. God remembers us and loves us and cares for us and pursues us so deeply That he reveals himself to us. He does it through his very word. 
he brings Gabriel to Zechariah. And I don't know about you, but I can identify Zechariah because this would be terrifying in so many ways. I mean, this is the kind of thing that makes you lose it. Seeing something that you've never seen. Struggling to process, and we'll talk about his disbelief in a moment, but struggling to process what's happening. This is the kind of thing that makes you lose your faculties, right? That makes you not understand what's happening, what's real, and what's not real. This is beyond Charles Dickens' Ghost of Christmas Past stuff. This is an angel of the Lord that's come to him. And as wild as it is, you can still tell that he's smart. Look at verse 18. He says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man. But he, see, he doesn't say his wife's old. Look at what he says. My wife is advanced in years. So he's shocked, perhaps, but he hasn't lost it all. He's still smart enough to say that. God reveals himself to him through Gabriel and gives word, gives truth to him. God does the same thing with us. He reveals himself to us in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the very word of God, which he's given us, which we hold before us. In the creation that we see around us, God has revealed himself to us. He remembers us and he reveals himself to us. And then we see things take a turn in this story. And the angel's words almost seem like Zechariah is being punished. But instead, we get the beautiful picture that God not only remembers his people, and he not only reveals himself to his people, but that he also renews them in the silence, in the uncomfortable place. Zechariah struck, whoop, there we go. Zechariah struck by this in verse 18 says, How shall I know this? All of these promises that he's receiving from Gabriel. He says, how can, how can I know this? And ultimately, he's saying with these words, this can't be possible. I'm an old man, and my wife is not as young as she used to be, right? This is what he says. He doesn't understand how this can be. In short, this one who is righteous, who is blameless, who has trusted God in this moment is struggling to believe. And this is what Gabriel says to him. Behold, you will be silent, unable to speak, this is verse 20, until the day that these things take place. So until this promise comes forth, until this child, who will be John, who will be the one who is the, that goes forward and prepares the way and makes a way for the Lord, this prophet of, of incredible nature, until this event happens, he will be mute. He says, behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak because you did not believe my words. Now, that sounds like punishment. But it's actually God's provision. It's actually God taking this moment to help Zechariah be renewed in his faith. The goal is not to punish him for not believing. The goal is to help him believe. God wants to walk alongside him and father him and grow him in belief, in trusting in him, 
in resting in the very promises of God. That is what the goal is for Zechariah. How do we know that? How do we see that happen? How can we see that the silence that he undergoes, that he experiences, this inability to talk, this inability to communicate, how can that silence be the place of renewal? Well, if you flip over a page in your Bible, probably, and look at verse 64, really 57 through 66, you kind of get the account of the birth of John. And a strange scenario happens. On the eighth day, when it's customary for, for a child to be circumcised, family gathers and people are there because this is a naming ceremony. The child is given a name in this moment. And when asked what the name will be, Elizabeth tells all the family that is gathered. And you guys may be gathered with family this past week, and you can recognize the, the challenge and the dynamic in, in, in people's families, right? In-laws and that kind of stuff, right? They're good people, right? Cool. It was good to talk to you all this morning. Um, look, all of this family is there. They're all gathered for this naming ceremony. It would be very customary for this boy to be named something in the, in the, in the patriarchal way, in the father's family's name. And she says, we're going to name him John. And at that moment, you can kind of think about like, granddads and grandmoms and aunts and uncles and all looking around and be like, which one of us is John? Who knows a John? They're bewildered. They're confused because that doesn't exist. Zechariah can't speak yet. He grabs like a stone tablet, as Luke records, and says, he writes on it to communicate, say, his name is John. Like, that's what it's going to be. And when he does that, at that moment, Look at verse 64, his tongue is loosed, he's able to speak, and this is what happens. This is wild. It says that he blessed God. Now, I want you to think about this. For the duration of Elizabeth carrying the child, Zechariah is mute. He can't speak. You think about the thoughts and the things that, that, that went through his head. What it felt like to not be able to communicate. I think if I was in that situation, I'd probably say, finally. Right? Or, whew, I'm glad that's over. I can't believe it. That was awful. That was terrible. Zechariah immediately blesses God. It's as if praise is the only thing that can come off of his lips. Why is that? How can that be? It's as if his belief and his trust and his rest in God comes pouring out in this moment because he sees that God was at work in the silence. In the midst of pain, in the midst of wondering if God was really going to come through, if he was really going to keep his word, Something changed for Zechariah. His perspective shifted. And he realized that in these moments, God has been at work. So when you and I wait in the silent moments of life, and quite often that's where we find ourselves, 
praying the prayer that we feel is not being heard, not being answered. Waiting on the test result, trying to determine if we're financially going to make it with this endeavor, wondering if the relationship will ever be restored, wondering if you'll ever be able to go to a family gathering and actually talk about anything real and true. Wondering if you're going to see the person that you love at the next family gathering. I don't know where you are this morning. But I would imagine that in some area of your life, there are moments of silence. Where you wonder if God remembers you. Where you wonder if he's going to reveal himself to you. The hope of this text to assure us that God doesn't waste moments. He renews us in the silence. He transforms us to see that when we thought nothing was happening, he was at work the whole time. 400 years of waiting. And ultimately, back to Genesis 3 of waiting for restoration. This intertestamental period where people wondered, is this Messiah going to come? The psalmist tells us that God does not slumber nor sleep. God is at work in the silence and is at work in the silence for us as well always accomplishing his purpose to be revealed at the right time. I think it might be appropriate to, to close this morning describing what Advent is. Well, it's a celebration of the arrival. But in so many ways, it's not just this season pastor, theologian, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes it in, in this way. Prior to his martyrdom, um, he wrote in a letter uh, from Tegel Prison in Germany. Today is the 27th. He wrote this on the 29th, 1942, I believe. At the height of Nazi Germany, he's going to be executed. And he has these profound words. He says, the Advent season is a season of waiting. But our whole life is an Advent season. That is a season of waiting for the last Advent, for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We step into these four weeks prior to Christmas, and we celebrate the arrival of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who will come, what Clay read from Isaiah 9 this morning, wonderful, counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father, this one who would come. How do you step back into the biblical story? How do you walk back into the place where you can celebrate this? You do so by remembering that you're not alone. 
that we wait for Christ's second coming. But as we wait, it is really important that we recognize the truth that God's word gives us. That he remembers us. Wherever you are, whatever you're walking through today, you are not unseen. God remembers you. We know that because he's revealed himself to us. He's done it in the life, the very birth, the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the recording of that in the scriptures. God's revealed himself to us. And remember, whatever season of silence that you're in, whatever place you're in, whatever moment you're in, you will be tempted to believe that God does not hear you. That God is not for you even. The enemy will try to tell you this. Oh, but he's working. And he's renewing us in the midst of that silence so that when that silence ends, we can bless his name and tell others about his goodness and what he's done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. As we continue worship, if you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, it's often hard to believe for us that you remember us. God's all made. David would say, what is man that, that you are mindful of him? Who are we that you would think of us? And yet, God, you look at us in our need. You look at the world in need. And at the fullness of time, brought your son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us who were under the law. Father, would you help us believe gospel of Jesus Christ, that you remember us. That you've revealed yourself to us in your Son. Father, the Apostle John would write and say that no one has, has seen God, but that to see Jesus is to have seen you. Help us to believe the accounts, the truth of your word. And what Jesus has done for us. And Father, for, for our unbelief, for our pain, for our moments of silence, help us see that you are walking us toward belief and moments of blessing you and recognizing your goodness that you are the one who works even in silence. That we are not alone. Cause our hearts to remember these things as we celebrate your arrival this morning and every day. In Jesus' name.